This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society section on medical education. My name is Avi Cooper and I'm a pulmonary critical care physician and fellowship assistant program director, a director at Ohio State. And I am fortunate to be joined today again by Dr. Lexmi Santosh. And you re- may remember that we recorded a podcast um, that uh, discussed teaching in the time of COVID. And we're fortunate enough to have Lakshmi back on the podcast again today. Just as a reminder, Lakshmi is a pulmonary and critical care physician and the associate program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. And on today's episode, we're going to discuss the article of which she was a senior author on, which was published in ATS Scholar, titled Diversity in the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Pipeline, Trends in Gender, Race, and Ethnicity among Among Applicants and Fellows. So Lakshmi, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back, Avi. And do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I would say a fun fact is that I kind of grew up all over the world, but now the short answer is I'm from Kohler, Wisconsin, where they make the bathtubs and toilets. I'm sure you've heard of that. Nice, Uh, nice. And we actually went to med school together, and then I came out to UCSF for intern year and never left. So stayed here for residency, a chief year fellowship, and now on faculty. And I would say my research interests really are in medical education. And I'm particularly interested in, you know, looking at this article, looking at career choice, subspecialty career choice among residents, and what makes people want to choose the subspecialties, and also interested in issues about diversity, equity, inclusion. So I do a lot of stuff related to women in medicine at our institution. I'm one of the directors of our Women in Leadership Development Program, which was specifically for residents and fellows focusing on skills um, in the early end of the leadership pipeline. So that's a topic that I'm particularly passionate about. And then one of the cool things, sort of another reason that I was interested in this topic is that I tell people that I have a dream job and that I attend in both the ICU and also on the general medicine wards service. So that has been really awesome. And UCSF, you know, uh, considers, it's considered to be kind of the birthplace of hospital medicine. And so it's been awesome to attend in both the ICU and on the hospital medicine service. And that piqued my interest to see, does that affect our residents' kind of career pathways? Um, Does that make subspecialty choice a little bit more likely because there's so many great hospice role models. And I first started looking at this just with our very local data saying, you know, in my class and a couple of classes above and, and before me, how many people went into different specialties, went to hospital medicine, primary care, and then looking were there gender and race, ethnicity disparities among that. And then I thought, you know, we should really be looking at these trends nationwide and across all the specialties. So that's why I'm interested in this topic, and that's kind of the angle that I came from. And um, has this, at at what point in your um, kind of career development did you realize, like, hey, like, this is an important issue, this is a problem, like, we really need to address it? Was it when you were really kind of examining your own, your own internal data? That's exactly when the, the birth of this idea came, when I thought, wow, 
we need to really make sure that the subspecialties specifically are a diverse and welcoming and inclusive environment for all people. I think one of the ways it hit home for me too is that we've been blessed that some of our faculty are amazing you know, national leaders of women in critical care, women in pulmonary medicine, people like Dr. Carolyn Calfi. Um, and then I remember going on the interview trail, applying to pulmonary critical care fellowships across the country and looking around to some programs and saying, hmm, there are not many people who look like me here or being one or two women in the entire interview day amidst, you know, a sea of black pantsuits. And so that, that also caused me to reflect, how can we make our field of palm critical care, which perhaps traditionally has had a little bit of a, quote, bro culture, a little bit more accessible and, and diverse and equitable, inclusive, and encourage, you know, our junior residents to still go into that field. And how do we change that culture as a, as a community nationwide? I think that's terrific that something that started as simple as an observation on an interview trail, you know, of a trend to take that to the, to the level that you've taken it of doing, you know, national level high impact inquiry and potentially, you know, impacting the future of this specialty and others. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's really commendable. Do you mind walking us through your research question and just briefly about your methodology? Sure. So our main approach and question was really, let's look across the entire pipeline of our palm critical care workforce. So let's look at medicine residents, fellowship applicants and fellows and see kind of what are the trends and the actual raw numbers and percentages over time and are there differences by gender and race ethnicity over time. And this is complicated because of course we have pulmonary critical care programs, but there's also pulmonary only and critical care only programs. So we wanted to get a complete lay of the land and look at all three. And a couple of people have asked regarding the article, you know, what about some groups like Asian Americans, for example, and we specifically use the AAMC, American Association of Medical Colleges, definition for underrepresented in medicine, or UIM. And that really is a specific definition of looking at populations that are underrepresented in the medical profession relative to their numbers in the general population. And so they're really focusing on people who are self-identifying as African-American or Black, Hispanic or Latinx, American Indian, Alaska Native or Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander. So we specifically focused on those populations. And of course, it's, it is by self-report. And what were the, and, and what exactly were the sources of your data? Right. So these are actually some publicly available data sets. So um, you can get data on applicants through ERAS, the Electronic Resident Application Service for fellowship applicants. And then the GME census data are actually published every year as publications in JAMA as sort of a handbook on workforce that has a lot of statistics. We also looked at, not included in this analysis, we looked at ABIM, American Board of Internal Medicine data on current fellows. We looked at NRMP, the National Resident Matching Program for their data as well. And so all of those different organizations that I cited report, collect, look at these data a little bit differently. So one of the challenges that we found was sort of how do we count an accurate denominator 
or what are the percentages that matter? You know, is it matched applicants? Is it matched registrants? Is it fellows? So those are kind of interesting questions that we wrestled with and, you know, analyzed and reanalyzed in those different ways. How long did it, how long did this research take you? Oh, <laughs> I'm a big fan of talking about the CV of failures. So um, I think one of the challenges is that, you know, selling people on the, as they say, kind of the so what question or the importance of this question. And I think I appreciate the ATS scholar editorship in realizing the importance of talking about diversity, equity, inclusion in our pipeline. But in general, I think getting people to sadly care about, about this issue sometimes takes a little bit of persuasion. That's an inherent challenge in doing any diversity work, whether it's related to women in medicine or people who are UIM. And it's a little bit a form of a minority tax in a way of kind of convincing people of the importance of diversity and doing diversity work. So um, it has been a process and we were very excited to to see it come to light and be disseminated and hopefully impact how specialties think about recruiting a diverse class. And do you mind just briefly summarizing kind of the take home results that you found, the trends? Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things that we found is that with regard to women in pulmonary critical care medicine, it looked like we did have some progress in the 1990s in the trends, but it was troubling to see that those actually plateaued. One of the other things that we looked about in the paper was, you know, we, we talked about this framework of the leaky pipeline, right, where at each stage, you might see kind of a drop off or a step off in how many people are advancing to the next stage, whether that's medicine resident to palm fellow, palm fellow to faculty, et cetera, and thinking about where those leaks are occurring, kind of, quote, localizing the lesion as the neurologists do at different points in time, and what might be contributing to those trends. And so those are a little bit hard to parse, but we do see some specific drop-offs at specific levels. So for gender, for example, there's a big drop-off at the application step to both pulmonary critical care, pulmonary and critical care only. So there wasn't a substantial change in percentage of women from applicants to fellows, say. So what that implies is that we really need to recruit more women at the application step, saying medicine residents, you know, how can we make the field of palm critical care medicine more attractive to you? And interestingly for UIM trainees, there were, there were some differences actually between the palm critical care and the palm and CC only programs, the standalone programs. And so there was a big drop off, for example, from residents to applicants for PCCM, for the combined programs. So that, that again means we need to focus on the recruitment, encouraging UIM residents to apply. But for the POM only and critical care only programs, we noticed a drop off from applicants to fellows. So that suggests that the UIM applicants are having trouble matching to these standalone programs at a lower rate disproportionately. And, you know, we looked at if IMG, International Medical Graduates, perhaps was one kind of confounding variable or mediating variable for this because IMGs do disproportionately contribute to pulmonary only or, or critical care only programs rather than PCCM programs. So we we're wondering about that, but I think more investigation needs to be done, especially because sadly our UIM percentages are quite low across all of our programs. And so I think there's more work to be done into figuring out what these factors might be 
that are contributing to differences in career choice. And I really like the, the concept of the leaky pipeline. I know Dr. Quinn Capers, who's um, uh, one of the deans at Ohio State, has also talked a lot about this. Um, and I think it's a really nice framework of how to think about this um, progression from uh, through training and, you know, and the fact that you did really piece out each transition, you know, each activation point that is required right. to get into the field from being a resident applying matching. Um, but it, it is interesting that it, it seems like there were different, like you said, there were different drop-offs at different stages of the application process. And obviously any answer you give is going to be probably speculative because your research was really focused on the trends that you saw. But any thoughts as to why gender and um, underrepresented in, in medicine um, uh, are having um, different stages of drop-off? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, like you said, it's we're all it's all hypothesis generating at this point. We're all speculating about that. And I hope that we can do further qualitative work to really ask people about these factors that are persuading them or dissuading them from pursuing certain careers. I think that, you know, what we talked about earlier, that lack of role models or mentorship is a huge contributor of people saying, none of these people look like me. And and not only that, but also saying, you know, who's actually actively reaching out as a mentor saying, hey, you're, you're really good at this whole ICU thing. You should consider, have you considered applying to palm critical care? So I think that there is this, you know, concept and framework of stereotype threat and imposter syndrome, which are also accentuated in women and people who are underrepresented in medicine. And I think that, um, you know, how can we acknowledge those and say, you are really awesome at this and I wanna convince you or persuade you to apply to our field and help people, help recruit people to the field in that way. And I think that's one thing sort of on the applicant side and on the mentorship side. So all of us are ambassadors and role models for our field in palm critical care medicine. So all of us need to be thinking about recruiting our next generation, our next class, our pipeline and making it diverse and inclusive. So all of us can help in that way. I think another thing that we can do to help and hopefully we'll talk about it more is that from the program side, one explanation, you can't just say, oh, people are self-selecting out, right? I think that's a common way people look at the Leapkey pipeline, say, oh, people are just not opting in, people just don't wanna do pulmonary. Um, you know, the, the women and people who are underrepresented medicine just don't want to do pulmonary critical care. And we should do focus groups to figure out why. That's like a very common framework. And I think we have to consider the other side of that framework too, the program side of saying, you know, and this is hard to admit and talk about, but what are some unconscious biases or implicit biases that may be inherent in our processes, in our selection processes? And, and what are kind of larger structural forces that can discriminate against particularly UIM applicants. And so one little example of that is thinking about, you know, as, as program directors and leadership, it's hard to screen through all these applications. And so looking at things like board scores or the name of the institution that you went to are easy kind of screening thresholds. And, and also acknowledging that there are data showing that say step one scores particularly can have a lot of embedded bias in it. Also, I think that we, we 
tend to value things that we can concretely or discreetly count as numbers. So this person had this many pubs, this many abstracts, right? But thinking more broadly about the concept of distance traveled and holistic review, saying how is this applicant taking advantage of the opportunities where they were at and made the most of their resources rather than just comparing numbers of pups. So saying that applicant who has actually had to work as a part-time job, you know, um, not a research lab tech job, but a part-time job in this restaurant industry, in the service industry, and still managed to get this one publication or abstract, that's actually, we have to value that just as right. your applicant who worked as a part-time lab tech, because these people are, everyone is kind of making the best of their circumstances. How do we look at that holistically? And that's the concept of holistic review. Yeah, I mean, people's life stories matter, right? Exactly. You know, and and it, it's, it is hard, like you said, when you have so many, so many applications to look through, but finding a way to, you know, to, to see the backstory and to see what people have gone through to get there. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's also hard to talk about this without talking about the steps before coming, you know, before coming to medical school, you know, you know, the, 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 um, you know, gaps and opportunities that, um, you know, I think, especially um, underrepresented ethnicities in medicine um, can face long before they come to, to apply to a fellowship um, can have impacts, you know, uh, uh, with this as well. And I know Dr. Capers um, has spoken about this. And so I, I think that's an important consideration too you know, that this story goes long bef back long before people applied, you know, decide whether or not to apply to pulmonary or critical care. That's exactly right. And I think that's why partnering with the parent residency program and even the med school are so important. So we're so lucky that at UCSF, um, the, the importance of valuing diversity, equity, inclusion is really from our dean, Dr. Talmadge King, a palm critical care physician. Um, he has emphasized from the beginning that and he's launched this whole campaign called Differences Matter and saying really from the med school selection level, right? So when you're looking at college students or college grads applying to med school, from that point onwards, we're going to value diversity, equity, inclusion. And then similar, the residency has made a really robust effort to improve our recruitment of people underrepresented in medicine and women as well. And so it has to really permeate, like you said, throughout the university's culture too, from the medical school application process to the internal medicine residency, and then to the fellowship. And then again, at the end, on the other side of it, faculty retention and recruitment too. So how do we keep, recruit, and retain diverse palm critical care faculty as well to serve as role models and mentors as well? And also, again, building capacity so that's not just another form of the minority tax saying we're not just going to stick all the UIM students and trainees with the one UIM mentor because that's a form of minority tax as well so saying how can we build our faculty capacity and our faculty awareness across our faculty as well to again to help recruit and retain people at really every step of the way and and you're now you also did an analysis of the um, internal medicine fellowship field as a whole, which you um, published in, in JAMA, looking at um, underrepresented um, minorities in medicine. Um, and how did how did your results from the from the pulmonary critical care specific analysis differ from that IM fellowship field as a whole? So that analysis 
was looking at trends, like you said, in racial ethnic diversity across the internal medicine subspecialties. And that was, that showed that sadly, our field of PCCM, I'm sorry to say, we didn't fare very well compared to the other specialties. So we were not rock bottom, but we were second to last in terms of our percentage of UIM fellows. And one interesting thing that we noted there was that actually a lot of the procedural specialties, so cardiology, pulmonary, um, a lot of the more popular specialties actually, so hemonc, GI, had the lowest percentages of UIM fellows. And an article published in JMIM in 2019 looked at the gender trends as well, and similarly found that compared to other internal medicine subspecialties, we're on the lower end, again, kind of second last in terms of our percentage of female fellows. So the response was actually fascinating to that article of different specialties. So of course, we did not intend it as a shaming piece at all. And yet, you know, for example, Hemonk had the lowest percentage of specialties with UIM representation we found in our analysis. And so a lot of different Hemonk programs or communities or society contacts actually contacted me, or there was a lot of social media awareness being like, hey, we are dead last as Hemonk as a community. And so it was interesting to see how different subspecialties registered that data and said, we got to do better. Like compared to our medicine subspecialties, you know, it's not like we're comparing it to surgery or surgical subspecialties compared to our own internal medicine subspecialties. How are we faring? And I think, again, that's another opportunity to look at best practices. So how has infectious disease or rheumatology or endocrine, how have they been more successful at maybe recruiting and retaining a more diverse and inclusive class of fellows? And also, again, it does also go back to career choice questions as well. We want to ask what are different what are different factors or contributors to that? And are there, you know, we want to make sure that that people are making their choices, informed choices, but are there biases or subtle pressures even earlier on? Um, are there kind of messages going on, messaging going on about, you know, the value or worth of different specialties? You know, we hear that from the med students, for example, when you hear that med students are being told tragically that, you know, oh, you know, things, derogatory comments have been made to medical students about, say, choosing careers in primary care, which is so unacceptable. Primary care is the foundation of our healthcare system. So similarly, and that's been well documented in the literature. And so similarly, you wonder, and that's why further qualitative work will be really helpful in outlining and delineating what are messaging that residents have received about different subspecialties? What are factors that contribute to their own personal choice? What have they sort of heard? How has the role modeling and mentorship been? Um, how do differences in the procedural nature, how do differences in compensation structure contribute to subspecialty choice? Again, all these are hard to talk about, but I think it'll be important to get further information for a deeper dive about what's contributing to some of these differences. It sounds like you're really holding up a mirror to you know the field of pulmonary critical care in terms of um, gender and underrepresented minorities and in um, in our specialty and to the you know the internal medicine community as a whole um, and is that is that what's next for you with this question like are you interested in, in in that in that deep dive as to you know individual level decisions that people are making or do you want to stay broad and think about about trends and policy What's, what's most interesting to you? 
they're, they're all interesting questions. I think that what we do want to do is work on the qualitative piece in terms of asking people to describe some factors. You know, there have been some survey data about resident career choice, but it's been very general about kind of primary care versus subspecialty. And no one has really looked at a deeper dive into the differences between the specialties or the differences in the specialties in hospital medicine or primary care. So I'm very interested in that and thinking again, hearing from people themselves, just like that story I shared, what are stories that people have that really were turning points in their career to persuade or dissuade them for different specialties? I think there, there's power in these raw numbers and the data and qualitative data have a different sort of power. I think making it, finding a good sample of diverse residents and fellows to participate across institutions will be really important. So I think that is gonna be our next step of looking at how to get a nice broad sample of participants who are you know, from inclusive backgrounds to talk about these issues. Yeah, I mean, pl pl please continue to hold up that mirror for us, you know, and uh, you know, I think we, we're, we're all learning a lot from you and the work you're doing. We're learning about ourselves, we're learning about our specialty. Um, and I think you're, it, you're, you're helping shape the future um, of, of the specialty of pulmonary critical care. And I think, you know, graduate medical education, medical training in general, and with the work you're doing. So, um, you know, a big round of applause for that. So thank you. Oh, thanks so much. And, you know, it's the, the data show that diverse teams are higher functioning teams. And so we have so much to learn from each other when we have diverse and inclusive teams. So it's really important. And, you know, hope is not lost. We can actually do a lot as a specialty and as a larger community to improve um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our field. Well, Lakshmi, thank you so much for joining us on Scholarly today. Where can people find you? So I would say my major social media presence is on med Twitter. My handle is Lakshmi MD. I mostly use Facebook, mostly just for stalking old high school friends, et cetera. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again, Lakshmi. Um, and that's going to uh, wrap up this episode of Scholarly. Please, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player of choice so that you can stay updated whenever uh, new episodes are available. You can read the open access article uh, that Lakshmi wrote and was discussed in this podcast at atsjournals.org slash journal slash ATS dash scholar. Take care. <laughs>